0: Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas, and they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So <sighs> thank you for being a part of the First Bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow, and be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning.
1: Joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join. Them. I'm Erin Forward, MSP CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels. And enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, folks. Today,
0: I get to introduce a very dear colleague and friend and a woman who I greatly admire and a woman who literally just made the impossible possible. Dog is also very excited in the background. I get to introduce None other than Angie Neal, MS, CCC SLP, the SLP contact at the South Carolina Department of Education, also known around the world as the queen of R, I had to practice that a lot to not trip over the R's, and an advocate extraordinaire for literacy for our little ones. But let me tell you why I fangirl her. I'm trying hard not to cry. So back last summer, I got a call from her about questions regarding PFD. And honestly, I was like, why is she asking me about PFD? She doesn't treat PFD. This is what's going on. And so a few minutes later, she pitched an idea to me about overhauling the SLP manual for the entire state, for all the SLPs in the state to include pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And y'all, she did it. Several late-night emails, FaceTimes, a ton of phone calls, volunteer woman hours, let's own that, woman hours, and aggressive, it's really aggressive on my part, an aggressive ref draft that she smoothed out and made pretty, i.e. easier for all parties to swallow, pun intended, and here we are. As of April 2022, can't believe it, South Carolina officially will recognize evaluation and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders in the public schools, for all of our little ones in the entire state from three to 21. And I just got cold chills. And Angie, I am so grateful for you for changing the lives of thousands of hundreds of thousands of kids from this moment forward. So I know that's not what we're covering today. What we're covering today is language and literacy, but you did it. Thank you.
2: Well, and again, it's just something that's so incredibly and very important to our students. So it's the right thing to do. Yes. Yes.
0: Also, thank you for making me less assertive when I was writing it. <laughs> you were like, Michelle, that's not going to
2: fly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. You, you're a goddess woman. You're a goddess. So <laughs> here we are. But PFD is not your thing. Your thing is the thing that I don't know how to do. And <laughs> there right. was a therapy for a very, very long time for art. It's kind of funny because he still says off sometimes. And he's like, I'm going to get there, mom. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, buddy. But you're known for best practices for our treatment, but also, especially here in South Carolina, language and literacy, which is so far beyond my skill set. So how did you fall in love with this?
2: Well, I started actually my professional career in outpatient pediatric rehab, and I would work with these little 18-month-old, two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-olds who the only things they could say were yah ya" yeah, and Bubba, and we would get them <laughs> to a point where they were intelligible, and we would send them on their merry way to kindergarten, and I would follow up with the families later on and find that a good many of them kept ending up in resource. So 20 plus years ago, I realized very quickly, there's something to this. There's a connection between speech and language and literacy. And so that just pushed me on a journey that I've been on for the last 20 years, where I'm insanely, nerdly, overwhelmingly passionate about language and literacy and that speech to print connection.
0: That's amazing. I feel like an hour of doing this is like a tease because there's a lot more to unpack here than an hour's worth of material. So folks stay tuned at the end. I'll tell you all the lovely places that you can find Angie, but let's just take it from the top. I mean, I see little ones. I see little ones and they hit like three to five and I'm done. And I have some older ones, like case in point, I have, I have this little guy that I see on Wednesday morning and he's eight years old and we're working through food chaining and eating gooey cheese crackers. And we have our Venn diagram where we're comparing our cheeses and like the different things we're trying. And I'm watching him struggle with writing and reading. And I'm like, I know he's getting services at school, but like, I don't know how any of this is interconnected. And oh, by the way, we have an ASD diagnosis. So what am I looking at? Where
2: is language and literacy happening here? (laughs) That is a great, great, great question. And I really appreciate you asking it, especially from the standpoint of itty bitty little ones, because what the research continues to tell us is that there is a direct connection, even for little ones, that when they have a history of spoken language deficits, that there's definitely the occasion for or reason to suspect that there may be later difficulties with phonological awareness. Phonological awareness is that ability to hear the sounds of language separate from their meaning. So it's more than just rhyme. It's also attending to the individual sounds. So we know that when children start out with a history of a speech or language or whatever type of delay, they are at more risk for developing these kinds of difficulties. So that is one thing, not only can we go ahead and start working on and facilitating, but we can also go ahead and be mindful of it and intentional with our therapy practices to make sure we highlight some of those things.
0: So how do you eval this? Like if we're doing, like what, are there specific tasks? Like do you have like a, a set guide? Like. If I'm concerned for this, I know I'm going to pull the standardized assessment or I know I'm going to use this tool.
2: I love that question too. So with that question, there are a lot of standardized evaluations, but my halt and concern with the standardized evaluations is what tends to happen with the standardized evaluation for phonological awareness using something like the comprehensive test of phonological processing or there's several other tests. What happens is you tend to take that composite score. And if the composite score is okay, they must be fine. But that's not really revealing to you what the deficits are. So say if they're really good in one area of phonological awareness, like rhyming, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're as good with substitution. And those higher level skills... Wait, wait,
0: wait. What
2: is substitution for (laughs) non-person? I have like no idea what you're talking about. I (laughs) love that you asked that question too. So substitution is an advanced phonemic awareness skill. So that would include substitutions such as say lunch, but instead of saying uh, say ah, launch. Or say... Oh, I could
0: not do that.
2: and little ones love it. So like four-year-olds, even if you do like a deletion task with compound words, say cowboy, but don't say boy. Actually, my favorite way to do it is to say, cow- say cowboy, but don't you dare say boy. Because then it's like a challenge. <laughs> and oh, man, they so totally love it. But. When you're giving a standardized assessment, it's not sensitive enough to reveal exactly what the deficits are. So my preference is actually to use the continuum of development for phonological awareness and do age range probes so that you look at Okay, What is that? So an age range probe would be, okay, so say you are a four-year-old. What skills should a four-year-old be demonstrating? And then if they are not demonstrating those skills, go lower. Do they have the skills they should have as a three-year-old? So that you're really looking at it from a developmental continuum and so that you also can then map out the goals you want them to achieve in order to get from simple phonological awareness skills to the more complex phonemic awareness skills, because again, that's your money maker. That is exactly what contributes to fluent reading and writing.
0: Okay, so do you have a preferred chart where one
2: may go to yes. know those Asian? Well, and so I've spent a, <laughs> as you can probably tell, I've spent an <laughs> enormous amount of time on this. So. I actually, on my teachers' page, I have a comprehensive phonological awareness probe that is by age exactly like that. That it also connects to phonics, and phonics being the representation what sounds look like is essentially what phonics is. So, okay, to- wait. So,
0: in my brain, the phoneme is the speech sound, mm-hmm. but like "b" or "b." I'm totally doing this wrong. And then phonics is the letter.
2: Yes, it's what the sounds look like. And okay. Where this comes into play with phonics instruction is, number one, if your students are only being taught the 26 letters, well, we as speech language pathologists know that there are 44 sounds. So there's going to be a gap, <laughs> right? There's going to be a gap between what they should know and then what it looks like. So phonics is teaching that SH represents the sh sound, which is, again, not a letter. Phonics is also teaching that the letter C doesn't actually have its own sound. It represents the sound s and the sound k. Phonics is also appreciating that, even from a morphological standpoint with morphemes at the end of a word, that it may sound like, let's use plural s as an example, it may sound like z as in a word like bugs. Letter S is now representing the is sound instead of the S when we call it plural S. But there's a reason for that. And the phonics piece or the instructional piece is that when a word ends in a voiced consonant, then that S is going to make the voiced sound. And if the word ends in an unvoiced consonant like t as in hat, then it's going to make an unvoiced sound as in hats. So that's the instructional piece. And that's the good stuff. That's the fun stuff. I'm still going back
0: to you saying, and SLPs know that there's 44 of these things. And I'm like, I did. <laughs> I promise I knew this 15 years ago when I went to pass the praxis, but like no freaking clue now.
2: <laughs> so like <laughs> somewhere that's tickling the back of my brain. I remember something that about 44. Yeah. I'm one of those nerds though, that I will for fun, sit down and just write out a list of what are the 44 sounds like? Make a list one through 44 and just write them all down. Cause it's actually harder than you think. See, such a nerd. Okay.
0: <laughs> I can, <laughs> I can go there. I have an anatomy physiology coloring book that my husband got for me. I'm like, <laughs> so like I can I'm good. But like y'all, when I say I don't do these things, I like legit don't do these things. So
2: Angie, thank you. Well, and I don't do what you do. So, I mean, That is the, oh my gosh, that is my favorite thing about the field of speech language pathology is the variety that we have and how we can actually really hone in on our passion, the things that we love. So you have honed in on your passion and I'll be honest, I have a passion for a lot of it. So I get, I'm just all the time reading journal articles and books, um, stuff like this. And my husband always makes fun of me because I never, ever read fiction books. He's like, why don't you just pick I up don't like uh, whatever? Yeah, see, he just doesn't no. get okay, it. <laughs> but is this what led you to like being
0: on the International Dyslexia, like being a branch of that association?
2: Absolutely, because what we know is that in about roughly 95% of the population that's identified as dyslexic, they have a core weakness in phonological awareness. So when knowing that phonological awareness Falls under the umbrella of phonology, which is language, which is us. So that's where, again, it's so incredibly important to have speech language pathologists as part of the discussion when you're discussing dyslexia, when you're discussing any difficulties with learning to read, because it's all language based. In fact, I like to say that teachers really aren't teaching reading, they're teaching language in the written modality as opposed to the spoken modality because you can find all areas of language in written language, syntax, phonology, morphology, pragmatics even, you can find pragmatics in there and semantics of course, the vocabulary piece. I just saw the circles in my head. I actually could follow.
0: I knew what you were talking about from the overlapping circles of language. Score one for Michelle following you thus far. Yes. (laughs) Yay, Michelle. Uh, Go team. Uh, Okay. Yes. And also, honestly, I'm kind of thinking of my gooser. Y'all, but okay. So backstory, right before Angie and I got on to record, I had sent her a picture of my little one, my seven-year-old's first 100 days of school. And he had to draw his old man and his goals of what he wanted to be. And she and I'm just so impressed of his goals because he wants to, before he's 100, he wants to fly on an airplane. Like we have like life goals here. And she picked up right away like handwriting and letter formation and spelling because he's on it. But I, my goose danger, my oldest... Who has convergence insufficiency is his diagnosis by the optometrist, and he's a Southpaw and a hypersensitive kid. We have some things, right? But his handwriting looks like that of a first grader, and his spelling words, I like we struggle because he cannot. Sound out a word like his word was culture, and he couldn't hear the L. And the way you're describing, but I mean, he reads above grade level, but when it comes to spelling, forget about it. So it's just very interesting to me. So I'm kind of analyzing him while we're going through these things,
2: right? So. So there's definitely that piece with the phonological awareness. But a lot of times, what we see is we do see children who struggle because they are not getting systematic and explicit instruction in those two skills in particular, phonemic and phonological awareness and phonics. Sorry to cut you off. I don't think he got that because we,
0: he's in third grade now, but he missed a chunk of schooling because of the pandemic. So I'm kind of wondering, is what we're seeing because mommy had to homeschool for like what was that? All of 2020 to 2021, like second grade? I mean, when he
2: would have shot gotten some of this? like And there's a definitely a piece to that, that what they call, it's referred to as learning loss, meaning it's learning that you have lost because you haven't had that directly in a school. However, according to federal law, ESSA, which is the Every Student Succeeds Act, and IDEA, so two federal laws, they require systematic and explicit. And those two words are really important. Systematic, going from simple to complex, explicit, meaning direct instruction in phonemic and phonological awareness and phonics. And what we tend to find is in schools, regardless of the pandemic, the instruction is neither systematic, nor is it explicit. A lot of times what happens is you'll either have, say it's a spelling word list, and it revolves around whatever they're reading. So for example, it'll have words from Charlotte's Web, like pig and goose, next to a word like salutations. Well, when you can't internalize or understand the internal structure of these words, there's no way to learn them. You can only memorize them. So that's not an appropriate way to to provide instruction because that's not systematic and that's not building from simple to complex. Or the other thing that happens is they give the spelling list on Monday, they test them on Friday and there's no discussion whatsoever, no guided practice, no nothing in between. That's not explicit instruction. Matter of fact, I'm not really sure how you could actually grade something you haven't actually taught. But that's another soapbox for another day. (laughs) Okay,
0: so I promise we'll get back to our conversations, but we got to chase this. So for a kid like Goose, I give me advice on my oldest offspring, where do I turn? Like, where do I, like, do I enroll him in speech therapy? Because, like, we're A, B, honor roll student. And, I mean, heavens to he's so half the day is taught in Mandarin and everything in Mandarin. He's, like, perfect scores in. But, like... Is this where I turn to, oh, I don't know, the literacy lab over at USC, U of SC
2: for assistance? What you're telling me is reinforcing everything that I know and believe as well. So even gifted and talented students, you're super, super bright kids like your babies. What that tells me is if they are that bright, but they still struggle with spelling, they Mm -hmm. still need to be taught those skills. So yes. if they haven't been taught those skills, yes, the spelling will continue to be not so great. I struggle. The other thing that you said is when you talk about Mandarin, Mandarin versus English, English is what's referred to as a morphophonemic language, meaning we read and write sound and meaning. And that makes sense when you think about the fact that, yes, we represent the sounds with letters, but we also add morphemes to add more meaning to the words. And even just the single morpheme of a, like the word, like cat. So Mandarin is not a morphophonemic language. I'm not sure what it is, but it's not morphophonemic. Dude, he does better in Mandarin than he does in English. (laughs) What that that tells you is whatever Mandarin does... It's likely that's a really good skill. Like he really understands that internally very well, but not for English. And the important thing to also appreciate, and this is not an overwhelming understanding in the education community, is learning to read is not at all like learning to speak. That stems from Mm -hmm. this whole language discussion that came about where, yeah, if you just expose kids to reading, they'll pick it up. No, ma'am. No. (laughs) That's not how that
1: works.
2: (laughs) If you think about it, if we were born with the ability to read and write and spell, guess what? Uh We would see cavemen blogs, not cavemen pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So reading is actually a skill that was created like 20,000 years ago or something like that. And it really only took off with the invention of the printing press. So what we know is that reading is not something that naturally occurs. You have to systematically and explicitly teach it. And what you use in your brain to develop reading and writing skills, guess what? It's the same areas as the language sections of the brain. The only thing that's different is if you're reading it, if you're a visual reader and you're reading it, you're also using the occipital lobe. But let's say you're blind. Then you're reading using a tactile. You're using your sensory motor parts of the brain. So everything we know about reading is directly connected to the language centers of the brain. So again, this sort of goes back to if your language was delayed or disordered early, you're especially at risk for developing difficulties with learning to read and spell.
0: Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think that's why I think bear excels. I'm just analyzing my children live. This is fine. This is normal. <laughs> I think that's why bear excelled in his reading and writing because he did have a hearing loss, but we knew about it so early and he had such intensive, as you said, explicit, explicit, Approach Mm -hmm. to speech sounds with printed words. Shout out to Dr. Angela McLeod. She's a goddess. Mm -hmm. Yes, but you're like, yeah, yeah. She's she's awesome. Yep, right. Like that was. It was very systematic. So he got. The letter sound correspondence and speech sound correspondence, which you were describing have technical words of phonological <laughs> and all those things. But like, and Michelle, Ann, he knew that this said this and this said this. And I was like, yes. And I was just happy he could say it. And it didn't sound like, come sit with me instead of come sit with me.
2: So, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's fine. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things, too, where a lot of what we do in therapy, especially for articulation, honestly. It is phonemic awareness. Anytime that you're pointing out or working on articulation in the initial position... That's phonemic Mm -hmm. awareness for sound isolation at the beginning of a word. (laughs) Anytime you tie it in the medial position or even with vowel-controlled Rs that are at the end of a word, now you're talking rhyming. So it really just takes just uh, dialing it up just a little bit in order to truly make ourselves intentional in what we're doing. So doing some of the additional phonemic and phonological awareness types of tasks, making sure they're following that continuum of development as well as even tying it with letters. So there's times when I would do phonological awareness activities and I would use just simple squares, like sticky note squares with nothing on them. But there's also other times I would use letters. So it really sort of depends on the student if they're ready for letters or they're not ready for letters. But yeah, what we do as speech language pathologists, (laughs) essentially is preparing them to learn to read it just is
0: you are literally an answer to a prayer tonight y'all Angie and I have tried to record sit still and record for like a year but like <laughs> we are both I don't know type A plus speech language pathologist <laughs> and last night we were sitting there and you know working on the word list which I think it's at or edge because like it was badge and then porch but it was like, G sometimes a ch sometimes a dg whatever it was a thing and like my husband and i were just like i was on the verge of tears because i was like why is he just not getting this like mom fail moment like y'all i'm literally burying my soul this is a really personal conversation for me but like i I just don't know where to
2: go. Well, it's one of those things where it shouldn't have to be this hard and you shouldn't have to do it on your own. So that's where we go back to looking at what does that instruction look like? And so that's the big question to ask. So not only what does the instruction look like now, but what has it looked like? Again, this is a requirement of federal law. And most states, including our state, we have two additional state laws that requires systematic and explicit instruction in phonemic and phonological awareness, phonics, and then the other three components of reading, which are vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. So it's one of those things where, at this point in time, we know the research, the science, the evidence tells us exactly what students need to know in order to become fluent readers and writers. Matter of fact, with general education core instruction, 80 8-0, eight 80% of the class should be reading on grade level. If they're not, then... So what is it, though? <laughs> oh, what it is, is exactly what the law lays out. Systematic and explicit instruction in those five yeah. components.
0: Yeah, but like if 80% is supposed to be on grade level, but like what's the real percent? That's kind of what oh. I'm curious about.
2: Well, and yeah. that's where when you hear people talk about the science of reading... Or even Uh evidence based reading instruction, that's what we mean. It means that the instruction Mm -hmm. we're providing and the curriculums that we're using, (laughs) hint, hint, will have to meet the mark for evidence based. That there's evidence to say that when we use this type of instruction and when we use this type of curriculum or this specific curriculum, the kids should be able to learn to read. But the prominent curriculums used today, there's two. And you can look them up on EdReports. The most prominent curriculums used today, if you look them up on Ed Reports, they fail in every area of instruction. Mm. But we spend hundreds mm. of thousands of millions of dollars, not only on the curriculum as a product itself, but the training to use it. So the curriculums we are using. If you really want to go down this rabbit hole, I'm going to go ahead and recommend to to the people who are listening, go ahead and pull up APM Reports and Emily Hanford. Emily Hanford is an investigative journalist who has really brought this to light that not only are the strategies we're using in schools teaching students how to read like a struggling reader, I'm going to say that again. We're teaching Mm -hmm. kids how to read like a struggling reader, not a proficient reader. Let that sink in. We're also using curriculums that have no evidence to say that kids should be improving in their reading or reading proficiently for their grade. So knowing this type of information should then empower parents to ask questions of their schools like, what's the evidence behind this curriculum? If you're using this curriculum, what is the percentage rate of kids who are on grade level? And actually, a lot of that information you can look up on your own State Department of Education website. Just look up your SC Ready scores in South Carolina. Look up your NAEP scores for your state. What is that? NAEP is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. What's Interesting about the NAEP—it's only given every two years. But what's interesting is the last time that it was given in 2019, the only state who showed improvement in reading, as a matter of fact, they had tremendous gains in reading, was Mississippi. Why is that? What did they do different? I was going to say, did they scrap the curriculum and like freelance? They scrapped the curriculum, and here's what they did: they provided knowledge to the teachers of what is evidence-based, what we know from the research works in teaching instruction. And why, let me explain why that's important. Because when you have a knowledgeable teacher, it really doesn't matter what the curriculum is, because a knowledgeable teacher can then adapt any curriculum to meet the needs of the student. Now, of course, we all want to make sure they're using evidence-based curriculums, but Regardless of the curriculum, if you have the knowledge, you can't take that away. And it won't change. The knowledge base won't change, even though curriculums may come and go. You're so in; I can tell. <laughs> I'm just like in shock and awe on
0: so many different levels. Also, serendipitously, in about a week and a half, I'm recording Dr. M- she goes by Missy, Missy Schroeder from the DeBard School out of Mississippi. Oh, wow. And Right. Right? We had drinks together at Misha. I probably shouldn't have said it like mm-hmm. that, but we had <laughs> drinks together at Misha um back in at their state association conference last year, August, September time frame. Mm-hmm. And like, she was telling me about their approach to literacy and like, and again, this is not something I do, so I find it fascinating. It's very fascinating. Yeah. But, and she was like, the, we're like the premier school in Mississippi. And so like, for you to say Mississippi and it just, it's just like- God, it's just timing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well,
2: and we should all aspire to be Mississippi. Let me tell you something else about Mississippi that I think is especially (laughs) cool. (laughs) Because I have nothing but praise, praise, praise to say for Mississippi. Mississippi, not only their Department of Education, not only did they train their teachers, (laughs) they told their institutes of higher education who are training teachers, you do this or else. Meaning. You, what? Yes. So, meaning you get on board with evidence-based reading instruction and teaching teachers this before they go out or, or you can go somewhere else. <laughs> because <laughs> because it, that is not the case in every institution of higher education when it comes to teacher mm-hmm. preparation. There are still a lot mm-hmm. of programs who teach based on what they've always done. Not based on the most current research of what should be done, because we know it's not only the most effective instruction, but the most efficient instruction. Mm.
0: I just, but I go back to, but Mississippi's taking us
2: by the lead in reading. And I'm just kind of like, I mean, I'm with it, but at the same time, it's just, it's one of those things where everybody used to say, oh, thank God for Mississippi because they were always lower yes. than everybody else. When you look and now at the, like
0: oh dear God. When you yes. look
2: at the 2019 scores for our state, we fell down five points. Mississippi moved up. We fell five points. Okay. Our state okay. is ranked forty-fourth in reading. Okay. And why? Okay. So why is that? Because
0: we do curriculum-based approach that doesn't teach explicit, specific instruction on all the things like I'm taking notes. Yeah. Phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, morphological awareness. I'm just putting awareness on the end of words at this
2: stage well, of It all boils down to we're not teaching based on the evidence of what we know works. Okay. Pure and simple. Okay.
0: So for those in the room that have dual hats of mom and SLP, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing a disconnect in our kids. Yes. We're seeing, like my goose, who's reading... Can't spell to save his soul. Bless his pretty little heart. Also, he's really handsome. He's getting glasses <laughs> and like, and he would not give me the Harry Potter glasses because he legit looks like Harry Potter. He goes, "Mom, you can take my picture, but I'm getting the man ones." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, I'm I had a similar <laughs> journey with my son. So I will never Wait, forget. What? It. Yes, as long as I live, I will never forget it. He and again, this is a cautionary tale for you moms who are hearing this. He had a social studies test and he made a C on the social studies test. And I said, no way. I said, he knew this information. Maybe it was a B. I can't remember. He knew this information up one side, down the other. So when the, the test came back, guess what they had taken off for? Spelling. Spelling. Struggling Mm -hmm. to spell things like Lord Proprietor. I mean, that's a hard word. That's not hardly even, that's not A, A, not a word you've been taught and how to spell. And B, it's a complex word. And so when I looked at the answers, he'd gotten every single answer right. But he didn't get an A because they took off for spelling. And the problem with that is the grade is for social studies content, not spelling.
0: That's not fair.
2: Something tells me you advocated for that to be changed. <laughs> oh, and it did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really did. Yes, it most definitely did. <laughs> it, yeah. Don't mess with our boys, boy moms. Save. Uh, absolutely. Yes. 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 Okay. So then, but where do we go? Okay. Like, am I? No. So uh, number yes. one, so- be involved in asking, what does the instruction look like? So if your child is in school now, ask what spelling program they're using. Ask this question, what is the scope and sequence? If there is no scope and sequence, that's a red flag. Then ask, what has the instruction looked like even in younger grades for phonemic and phonological awareness? A lot of times what happens is it stops with rhyming. And that is not where it needs to go. And let me explain a little bit more about why phonemic and phonological awareness are so important. Phonological awareness is what allows us to compare words we know with the words we don't know yet. So that's why, and this happens to me all the time with my speech students, they struggle with words like uh, habit and habitat. They don't hear the difference. So, that's one piece of it. Phonological awareness, especially for our buddies, our little speech buddies, that's what allows us to repeat and pronounce these new, challenging, multisyllabic words like Lord Proprietor and Photosynthesis and Cacophony, all these really complex words. But most importantly, and this is a big one to wrap your head around when we see a written word, so when we read a new word, we put it into our long term memory meaning the way we get it to be automatically recognized, okay? We put written words into our long-term memory by anchoring them to the sounds in the word and not by the meaning. And our instructional practice doesn't work that way. We t- the instructional practice is a focus on the meaning. So let me give you an example. So let's say your child is learning a word like suspicious. So they see it in print and they sound it out. They should be sounding it out. Now, I'll say this, Mm -hmm. some of the methods used now are not to sound it out. It is to look at the picture and make a guess. To reread the sentence and make a guess. To look at the first letter and make a guess. And here's where I have to say, guessing is not reading. Guessing is not reading instruction. So that is also a big question to ask. If you see something coming home, especially with your younger children, that instructs them to look at the picture and make a guess, they're not teaching your child how to read. They're teaching them how to guess. And guessing is what struggling readers do. So I'm going to give you another thing to look up. So if you go to YouTube and look up YouTube, there's a video called, I'm pulling it now to make sure I have it right, Here it is. It's called, Is My Kid Learning to Read? Is My Kid Learning How to Read? It's called Part One, The Purple Challenge. This was not done by a speech-language pathologist. It wasn't even done by a teacher. This video was done by a researcher who just, during the pandemic, happened to be helping her child with learning to read. And she started asking these questions. So, It's a fascinating video that makes it very clear that guessing, based on pictures, based on first letter, based on syntax or the sentence as a whole, is not reading. And then we can truly say, they are not learning how to read. They're learning how to guess. So anyway, going back to suspicious. So if they sound out the word suspicious, suspicious, something in their brain goes, (laughs) I'm sorry.
0: I never would have sounded it out like that. I'm like, I would be like, S-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s. but continue.
2: Yes. I'm, d- I'm doing the short and sweet version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then it's the a quick version. Then they'll go, oh wait, mom says that I look suspicious over there by the cookie jar. Meaning they've heard it. So they're connecting it, but they first had to connect it to the sounds. Now here's the difference. If they see a word like convalesce, And there you have, they don't even know what that is. So they'll go convalesce, 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 convalesce. They have no connection to it because it's not in their oral vocabulary. And they can't even sound it out because they struggle to even know where that syllable stress should be. So that's how we start to teach ourselves new words is when we can connect it to the sound and connect it to the meaning. It's all fascinating.
0: Yeah. And I'm just analyzing some of my PFD kiddos where like, and now now my brain's jumping to my kiddos that are nonverbal, but on AAC devices, because that's the other population that I work with that have like very low limited, except I have a little guy who has ASD, but he's hyperlexic. Oh. Like- And I picked him up because he had very limited, spontaneous verbal language. And I was like, well, where's his AAC device? So like I gave him LAMP and thank you, talk to me technology. Shout out to the amazing Wyatt and Kelsey. And Munchkin's throwing together three and four word utterances and then repeating, like he knows how to tap it out. And then he hits the sentence bar at the top and then he says it. And then the greatest thing is he starts chuckling at himself. And then he goes and does the thing that he said that he wanted to do. And I'm like, but he's hyperlexic. He's just, oh, I'm, this is not the time and the place, but I want to analyze that as habit as well.
2: Oh, this is fascinating. And I have a question for you. How many of your PFD kids do you think also have some kind of articulation difficulty?
0: Oh, tons. Because most of them were, I would go more through the phonological side. Mm-hmm. Most of them had hypertrophy of their adenoids mm-hmm. or palatine tonsils, mm-hmm. open mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. So we had anterior tongue thrust physician
2: or they had a stroke. So they have hemiparesis. and Yes. So that PFD population, even though they may or may not struggle with the spoken language or like speech, speech sound disorders, or and or the language, they may have perfectly intact language because of how they are hearing and saying sounds. They are at risk for phonemic and phonological awareness deficits.
0: Yes, yes, a fair few of them see me for the feeding and swallowing component, and then they have <laughs> they have the other therapist down the hall, the lovely Misera, who like works on the language. And it's like a joke because, you know, I'm like, ooh, you've gotten a bunch of words together, so you don't need shell anymore. Now you go here.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, "Eh, it's about my pay grade. One of my favorite things to cite in the research is from the Scientific Studies of Reading, which says the majority of all poor readers have an early history of spoken language deficits, with 73% of second grade poor readers having poor phonemic awareness or spoken language problems in kindergarten. And Mm -hmm. there's another one that says atypical speech sound errors and distortions in preschool are predictive of weak phonological awareness, even if their language is normal. So again, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of converging research that says our population, all the buddies that we see, We as speech language pathologists need to be especially mindful and intentional with what we do in this area. Okay.
0: So I am, when we're done recording today, I'm going to wait (laughs) for the pediatrician's office because they're going to be on lunch and I'm going to wait for them to open back up. And then I'm calling over and I'm going to get a prescription referral sent over to the lab and... After we're off the recording, you need to tell me which clinician to request because you know I'm going to do that thing. And everybody listening is like, Yes, I would
2: do the exact same thing. Well, and what's interesting, if you have a child in school, who should be doing this? So, number one, we know that not all teachers have this knowledge, but we know that Mm -hmm. it's required. So mm-hmm. is it the speech language pathologist that you need to touch base with? Is it and not all speech language pathologists know this information yet? You hear me, <laughs> you hear my optimistic yet there? Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that's how I feel about PhD. Yes, baby. yes! yet. That's exactly right. <laughs> that optimism. So it should start with your core instruction with the teacher. And if the teacher can't do it, it should also fall to the reading specialist. They're supposed to have this information. So a lot of times what will happen is speech language pathologists, because they're in a school where there are many people who should be providing this, it's not necessarily that you want to contact the speech language pathologist first, but the speech language pathologist may be able to provide professional development in order to help increase the knowledge base for the other two, because truly in a school setting, as it relates to the eligibility, the speech-language pathologist really can't address it until it's been addressed in regular education. That's one of the rule-out questions. Of response
0: to interventions. Well, RTI and it's a rule-out
2: first. question. We have to say, before we say a child is, has a disability, I mean, a Disability, before we give them that term, that label, we have to make sure there's a rule-out question that says this disability is not due to a lack of instruction, systematic and explicit instruction in phonemic and phonological awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. That's literally part of the IDEA law is that rule-out question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then I have a question.
0: Go. I am no longer over at Francis Marion because honestly, 50, 60 hours a week (laughs) and two tiny tots was kicking my good God Almighty. And I needed to be home with my boys. Yeah. But I would get a call all the time. Do you guys treat dyslexia? Do your speech pathologists treat dyslexia? And I was like, to the no, because that's not what was available at our clinic. But if, and this is not my gooser, but like there's plenty of kids out there whose parents have this concern. Oh, yes. I don't know this. Who diagnoses dyslexia? Like what referral do they have that right for? But like, and, and that, then what if the school-based clinician doesn't do this? Who do they refer? Can
2: they refer? Like, yeah. So- that's a great question. So outpatient speech-language pathologist, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, knowledgeable school-based yes, <laughs> school speech-language pathologist can <laughs> provide this type of support all day long, every day, if they wanted to. So as mm-hmm. far as the question of who diagnoses dyslexia, typically, I would say it's a school psychologist, which doesn't mean they're always working a school. There are private school psychologists who do these assessments as well. What's interesting about dyslexia diagnosis in particular is, oh, absolutely you want to include assessment of phonological awareness because that's the core deficit. But again, I give you that caveat, Don't rely on the overall composite score. You need to look at the subtests and then look at that in comparison to what they should know based on their age. But the school psychologist is also going to give a comprehensive battery that may or not include cue measures, writing measures. They'll really tease apart. Is it the decoding that's tripping up the comprehension or is there more of a comprehension based deficit, which honestly is more of a language based deficit? So, both a school psychologist and speech language pathologist have the ability to diagnose dyslexia, but more often than not, I would say probably closer to eighty to ninety percent of the time, it's a school psychologist. Okay. The difference between an outpatient school psychologist and a school based is the school based one will truly look at what has this instruction looked like <laughs> before we say they have a disability. Because I'm in this school with you. I have to turn over that card that says, Have we provided all of the instruction this child needs before we say is disabled? I like to use this comparison. It would be like saying, I have a disability in Russian. I've never learned Russian. <laughs> so, how could you say that I have a disability <laughs> in Russian? You wouldn't do that. Or car mechanics. I know nothing about car mechanics other than how to turn my car on and put gas in it, pretty much. So, it could easily be said that I have a disability in car mechanics. But I've never learned anything about car mechanics. So it's the same thing with our students. We can't call them disabled if they'd never been taught it.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I'm only laughing because this week I couldn't figure out why the gas pump wouldn't put gas in my tank. And it turns out it was just out of the number 93 gas, but was there a sign? No. And <laughs> I'm sitting there and I was like, I was like, I was like, when I click this button, it does the thing. And then finally the boys put the window down. They were like, Mom, you might want to go ask somebody, but they were like very awkwardly waiting on their mom to figure out. But like, but this works. I can do this. But like, no, I could not. <laughs> not a, <laughs> so like, <laughs>
2: not, not at a thing. Moment. No. And then even on the same vein with dyslexia, there's a lot of research out there that says, not that we can prevent dyslexia, but we can prevent the significant difficulties that are a result of dyslexia. And so that's why schools have started what they refer to as universal screening for K-1 and often 2. So kindergarten and first grade, they provide a universal screening. The whole purpose of the universal screening is to identify which kids are at risk. So they give them assessments, universal screening assessments that include letter sound knowledge, phonemic and phonological awareness, some phonics knowledge, maybe even answering comprehension questions, all of those things. But here's the kicker. Just because they do the screening (laughs) does not mean they are remediating the deficits they find at risk. And that is a big thing I am trying to change because as a friend of mine from Iowa likes to say... Weighing a pig does not make it fatter. In other words, <laughs> if you're just doing a, I'm so confused. In other words, if you're just doing a screening, that's not yielding any improvement whatsoever. It's just saying, mm-hmm. yep, there's a deficit. Mm-hmm. That's it. You have to do something with that information, and you have to do something early. Honestly, Nadine Gab who is a big dyslexia specialist out of Harvard, she's a big proponent of using this term, the dyslexia paradox. The dyslexia paradox is the fact that we often aren't diagnosing dyslexia until third grade when it's almost too late to do something about it. Or it will take 10 times longer to do something about it than if we had identified it in K1 and 2 Matter of fact, you can see signs of dyslexia in three-year-olds, four-year-olds. Wait, what? Yes, ma'am. And a lot of it is based on looking at the child's family history. Does the family have a history of reading difficulties? That's a big piece. Another big piece is also looking at those early phonemic and phonological awareness skills. So yes, we can even diagnose it as, or we can find at-risk factors. Maybe I should say that better. As young as age three. that's crazy. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. So, looking at phonological awareness, their automatized naming, their verbal working memory, and of course, what knowledge even do they have about early prints or early letter recognition? As young as age three. So, without a doubt, by kindergarten, we should be seeing the things that we know are putting them at risk and remediating them post haste. Full. Stop. Okay. So every
0: school district should have a school psychologist.
2: Oh, yes. Every school, I
0: say this, but right. I mean, I've worked in some like poor areas, and every school district should have a speech pathologist on staff. And if not at this moment, eventually, and yet, I'm going to I'm just throw the word yet in there, they will have the skill set. But what if they don't? Like they are, I know I hear concerns from SLPs when I'm lecturing about PFD that they can't legally make the referral or, but I mean, like they can, they just have to know how, like they're legally allowed to make outside referrals to a pediatric psychologist if nobody's on staff or to like, I mean, that's there's people that are listening that work in rural areas that are impoverished, or maybe it's one school psychologist for a district, but the district may cover like, honest to goodness, seven to eight hours landscape Mm -hmm. because of the size of the district. I'm thinking of like out West and like, I
2: mean, so what happens? So if I guess I think I'm thinking that your question is okay, if you're in a district that may not have as many resources, what can you do or what should you do? Yes. And are they allowed to make those referrals? The tricky part is for reading and dyslexia, your source should be your school. So even if the school doesn't seem to have those resources, say for example the school psychologist which i don't know how, why they wouldn't have a school psychologist i mean all the assessments that they do for determining disability yeah. it then becomes a question for the school district of why aren't these resources in place so is it a question of can they refer out if the district doesn't have these resources and this information that's a good question to ask because they shouldn't have to refer out Because these are things that should be provided in as part of a public education, as part of free and appropriate education. You hear that word FAPE thrown around? That's FAPE, free and appropriate education. Appropriate being, it should be appropriate that we teach kids how to read on grade level. Yes, but Mississippi just smoked all of us, so yes. there's that. <laughs> yes. And that's where too some of your advocacy groups like Decoding Dyslexia, they're in each state and they each have their own Facebook page. So get on your Decoding Dyslexia sites. Those are the people who are making lots and lots of grassroots changes. So for example, in our state in South Carolina, Decoding Dyslexia is the group Responsible for the legislation regarding dyslexia and the universal screenings, and that they should be providing dyslexia specific interventions. Decoding Dyslexia is the advocacy group that made that happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Decoding Dyslexia, I had no idea that that was
2: the support group that led this initiative. Mm-hmm. You and it's That's interesting amazing. because you would think it would be more your IDA, but what happens is mm-hmm. like with IDA. There's only so much manpower and bandwidth they have. But the parents, mm-hmm. oh man, you know the power of some parents to get some things done, especially when it's <laughs> their baby. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what I did mm-hmm. with my baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. There were mm-hmm. changes made. Don't, don't Which mess is why phone calls will be that's happening what, on lunch break. right? Yes. Don't mess with <laughs> mama bear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Don't poke the bear. Just don't do it. <laughs>
0: We tell Goose not to do that to Bear in the morning when Bear's waking up. <laughs> oh, my God. I almost snorted my water out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It takes a whole new pack off on me. Okay. All right. We – I knew this was going to happen. We've got, like, literally a minute and 10 seconds, but – I know you have favorite resources that you recommend. Oh, yeah. So before I go to where I can tell everybody they can take courses from you because people will want more, can you tell us what resources you go to and support groups?
2: I will tell you some of my favorite books. So especially okay. for speech-language pathologists, you will love this book by Mark Seidenberg. It's called Language at the Speed of Sight. And it really outlines all all of these underpinnings of the language for reading. So that's a favorite. Another one, and I love this one because it's so, it's written in a very non-academic and fun-to-read way. It's called The Reading Brain by Daniel Willingham. And it touches on everything. But again, it's a very accessible way. The adjunct course that I teach. That's the book we use. Another great one is David Kilpatrick. Anything by David Kilpatrick. If you go to Amazon and you search David Kilpatrick, anything he puts out, you're good. You'll be fine. If you get the chance to ever find on YouTube or listen to Dr. Marianne Wolf, she is a cognitive scientist, neurologist, all things amazing. And she has the most awesome delivery of information. So anything by Marianne Wolf, Right now, she's got a lot of things out there about the impact of screen time, especially mm-hmm. as it relates to reading. And as it relates mm-hmm. to what's the difference between a digital medium and a handheld print medium in reading. It's fascinating. That's a good one. Other resources, the Reading League. Go to the Reading League. That's online. That's free. They actually put out their own journal. And that journal is an amazing journal with amazing authors, amazing content. The Reading League is sort of the, the driving force right now behind the United States moving towards an evidence-based reading instruction. And they have a Facebook group. Um, each state... thats incredibly powerful. Oh, they're very powerful. And each state even has their own Reading League chapter. So Reading League is great. Of course, the International Dyslexia Association is great. You're going to find tons of information about structured literacy in a time right now where we tend to teach balanced literacy, which is not evidence-based. So we're moving towards or should be using structured literacy, and that's IDA, International Dyslexia Association. It was where you should find all kinds of information about that. Podcasts. There's a ton of amazing podcasts out there. The Reading League does one. The Reading League, of oh, AIM does one, A-I-M. Also, okay. the Emily Hanford that I was telling you about, everything she has written. Also, is as a podcast. And honestly, I prefer the podcast because there. I think there's a little more content to it when it's a podcast. I can't explain why, but it just it's a good one. I mean, I'm biased towards a podcast. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> I have it on pretty good authority that Dr. Kelly Farquharson, yes, may or may not be in the works for making a podcast mini series on speech sound disorders and literacy. That would be amazing.
2: Oh, that, which reminds me, See, Hear, Speak is a podcast by Dr. Tiffany Hogan, who's a big DLD and literacy, speech and literacy, our language and literacy thing. So See, Hear, Speak, that's another good podcast. Oh, Another good book, oh gosh, I love this book. I can't believe that I didn't mention it first. It's called The Logic of English, especially if you're looking at how can I help support my child in learning phonics, The Logic of English by Eid, which is E-I-D-E, it tells you everything you need to know. And it's a fascinating story, too, of how words are put together in a certain way. Oh man, that's a fun book. Uh-huh.
0: Oh my God, my brain hurts. Information overload. Okay, folks, it's, we got like two days, but I need y'all to get your um, katukuses to the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association Convention because I know that you want to know more and Angie, I'm totally like crash coursing your class. I'm (laughs) hoping. (laughs) But she is presenting at the Embassy Suites at the Kingston Plantation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. When are you presenting? Thursday the 17th? Yes, Friday Thursday. 19th? Mm-hmm. Thursday, wait, February wait, no. 17th?
2: Yes, Thursday. Sorry.
0: <laughs> Confused. <Okay. laughs> We're good. Thursday, February 17th, 2022. And she's going to be talking about her other favorite topic, which is the remediation of the "ah" oh sound. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Vocalic R. All right. If you're not local, if you can't get there, local being like, I mean, come on, folks, in North Carolina, Myrtle Beach ain't that far away. But if you can't get there, then you should still be able to access her incredibly comprehensive handouts from the ASHA convention. If you get on there and search, quote, why is R so hard? And then how to make it easy? If that doesn't work, check out all of her materials on Teachers Pay Teachers. Angie, I've never been on Teacher Pay Teachers. Is there like a handle? How do they find
2: you? Yeah, if they just search Angie Neal
0: or Word Nerd SLP. Okay, and that will include items for R home programs for articulation pragmatics, everything she talked about for phonological awareness, spelling, and dialect. So, Word Nerd SLP. You said that's all one word? All one word. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. And then don't forget, guys, I mean, I know this is first by this Speech Therapy PD, but Angie actually has a ton of webinars on speechtherapypd.com as well that also count for ASHA CEUs. And she presents at ASHA. She presents everywhere. So just... Anywhere Find you'll her. take, anywhere that will take me, I'll go tell
2: the good yes. stuff.
0: <laughs> yes, and she—oh my gosh! Everybody's laughing. I have seen her present, and everybody enjoys it. So,
2: well, it's like you, Michelle—the passion that you have <laughs> for something—it's contagious. Yes. So you yes. love to share what you know and have learned because it helps yes. other people. It doesn't yes. just stay with you; it helps lots more people. And I think that's where you and I are very, very similar.
0: Yes. Kindred spirits. Also, we're short, sassy, and from the South. (laughs) So there's that. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, kind of. Um,
0: All right, folks. Don't forget to check out at First Bite Podcast on Instagram, First Bite on Facebook page. And, you know, we always love it when you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So before you turn off your podcast, uh, hook us up with some five stars and Thank
2: y'all. You're appreciated. Angie, thank you, ma'am. Thank you,
0: thank you. Thank
2: you for a lovely time talking about one of my favorite things. I appreciate it so much. And I appreciate you and what you're doing. So thank you for all that you do.
0: Feeding Matters guides system wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So, what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So, uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep. Monday through Monday actually as Well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first fight presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speech therapy pv.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that, a webinar that I have on their website. As well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye.